You are listening to a podcast produced by the Jackson School of International Studies and the Ellison Center for Russian, East European, and Central Asian Studies at the University of Washington. This and other podcasts can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information, visit us at jsis.washington.edu forward slash Ellison Center. jetliner, which at that time was a little closer to the 
time. And I thought, how, how in the world, how can you ask questions from one spectrum to the other? But he just was in there, pivoted, knew all these different topics like no one else. So he was a, a man of incredible intellect. And he and Senator Jackson had a really remarkable professional and personal bond that was forged of their shared commitment to American policy and, and good environmental and energy policy and good national uh, security and national defense. And it was really a remarkable friendship that was forged over many decades. We are also fortunate tonight that uh, a member of our board and the daughter of Senator Jackson, Anne-Marie Jackson-Lawrence, is, is with us here tonight. And uh, two of uh, Jim Schlesinger's seven children, uh, eight children, sorry, <laughs> Uh, Anne Schlesinger and Emily Schlesinger have also joined us this, uh, for this inaugural lecture. This is something that we're really delighted, um, and I know that Rochelle will introduce John Deutsch, but I don't think we could have found a better person to exemplify the uh, joint Jackson-Schlesinger uh, legacy. So um, thank you all for, for coming tonight. John Bush has a uh, truly uh, distinguished uh, resume. Uh, his accomplishments are far too many, and you do have some of them in the programs that you have. So I will just uh, highlight a few of those so that we have time to hear him and also ask him questions. He's currently the Emeritus Institute Professor uh, at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Um, he, uh, his government service is really long and varied. He served as Director of Central Intelligence from 1995 to 1996. And at the time, he was the head of, head of the entire intelligence community and in charge of uh, all of foreign intelligence agencies in the United States. Uh, prior to that, he served as Deputy Secretary of Defense and also as Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisitions and Technology. Uh, during the Carter administration, he served as Director of Energy Research and Undersecretary, and that was under um, Secretary of Energy uh, James Schlesinger. Um, he was confirmed to that position, apparently, in the Senate, by the Senate, on recommendation of uh, the State Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee Chairman Senator Henry um, uh, M. Jackson. Uh, John Deutsch uh, also is a distinguished academic. Uh, he served as Dean of Science and also as Provost at MIT uh, and is uh, widely published on technology, energy, international security, and on public policy issues. So any one of those titles, uh, most of us would consider as the pinnacle of our careers. And to be able to go through all these paths and to reach such heights is truly admirable. So we're really privileged to have John Deutsch with us. And he will speak on the future of the US nuclear deterrent. And I'm very pleased to introduce him. Thank you all very much. I hope you could hear me. If you can't, let me know and I'll try it. first James Schlesinger 
lecturer and distinguished practitioner here at the uh, Henry Jackson School of uh, International Studies. Uh, both of these are exceptional men, and uh, uh, I'm pleased to be part of what we, how we see them as important to the country. I also want to point out to you, I come from Massachusetts. There are few of you here in the room who will recall that the uh, presidential Democratic uh, uh, nominated uh, winner in the state of Massachusetts in 1976 was Scoop Jackson. That's who won the primary in Massachusetts that year with my support. <laughs> Scoop Jackson and uh, Jim Schlesinger were uh, leaders in the legislative and uh, executive branches, respectively, during the Cold War and during the energy crisis of the 1980s. I worked closely with both of them in the Department of Energy and confronted many of the same issues that they did in the 60s and 70s when I was in uh, the uh, first Clinton administration as the Director of Central Intelligence and in the Department of Defense as Deputy Secretary of Defense. You will soon see that many of the recommendations that I made about how the United States should be thinking of our future nuclear posture are influenced by my experience in working for and with these uh, men. You know, the future of uh, the nuclear deterrent for many may not seem an urgent issue compared with others that the country faces, whether it's health care, terrorism, and the environment, climate change and the environment, because nuclear weapons don't touch the lives of Americans every day. But as one wag said, one nuclear weapon detonated can ruin your whole day. So the essence of nuclear policy, the essence of nuclear weapons policy, is to avoid a kind of catastrophe of that time. Catastrophe could destroy the lives of tens of thousands, if not millions of people, through an explosion of uh, a nuclear weapon. And I uh, begin my remarks by emphasizing that the purpose of the nuclear deterrent, the purpose of nuclear policy, must be to establish a framework, a, a, a policy, and a program for nuclear weapons, which makes sure that nuclear weapons are never used and exploded in anger anywhere in the world. Everyone shares that objective for nuclear policy. It is to assure that a nuclear weapon Exploded. The corollary is that nuclear weapons are not today and never should be considered as instruments of war. No country or subnational group should be permitted to consider such weapons as usable in any conflict. So while we are thinking about what our future nuclear posture should be, the curious, almost ironic uh, point to make is that that posture should be the one which makes it least likely that any weapon will be used by anybody in the world. That has not always been so. The view of nuclear weapons has changed over time. In the 1950s, during the Eisenhower administration, Secretary of State John Foster Dulles and the Chairman of the Air Force Chief of Staff Curtis LeBay believed that there was a doctrine of massive retaliation. This doctrine was based on the assumption that if anyone created a military strike against the United States or one of its allies, there should be immediate and certain massive retaliation by nuclear weapons. 
that time a wide range of short-range nuclear weapons, atomic demolition munitions, a whole series of nuclear uh, uh, explosives were deployed with U.S. forces throughout the globe with the idea that the conflict would be avoided if there were enough nuclear weapons and the certainty of their use in conflict situations. It took two decades before for the United States and the Soviet Union to understand that nuclear weapons alone were not a credible deterrent for conventional warfare. Both sides, and this is a very deep point about uh, international policy, both sides undertook war games where completely theoretical and hypothetical exchanges of long-range missiles passing and detonating on each other's countries. This would define the number and type of nuclear weapons you would need to have a stable situation, a stable balance of terror between the two countries. Over time, this calculus, as hypothetical as it was, became an effective way for regulating the arms control discussions and negotiations between the two countries and regulating the disposition and the composition of the nuclear forces of both the United States and the Soviet Union. Let me just say that it was the intellectual and political leadership of uh, Jim Schlesinger and of Scoop Jackson had a lot to do with the way the country evolved in that policy. A very, very great achievement, which is now barely remembered by most of the young, but nevertheless one of the truly admirable uh, accomplishments uh, in this uh, century in this country. It was the heart of what led to a relatively safe uh, Cold War, bipolar standoff of nuclear uh, weapons between this country and the Soviet Union. In 1974, uh, the uh, Indians exploded a nuclear weapon uh, unexpectedly uh, in uh, India. And uh, President Carter, supported then, interestingly enough, by uh, Jim Schlesinger, who was his first Secretary of Energy, and by Scoop Jackson, still chairman of the uh, Senate Energy and uh, Water uh, Committee, and of course, vastly more influential than all the national security measures on Capitol Hill, uh, pointed out that it was time to pay attention to the threat of uh, the spread of nuclear weapons to other countries of the world. A successful diplomatic initiative was uh, instituted by President Carter uh, and with the help of both uh, Scoop and uh, Jim Schlesinger. And uh, they managed to, to convince many of the other developed nations of the world, which had some nuclear capability, France, Germany, and Japan, to slow their exporting of sensitive nuclear technology to many countries of the world, which are uh, wanting to build commercial nuclear power, but to slow the process which, of that nuclear power, which was uh, most threatening to uh, the possibility of other countries acquiring a nuclear weapons capability, in particular reprocessing for the back end of the nuclear fuel cycle and enrichment for the front end of the nuclear fuel cycle. So these activities were important at that time, beginning in uh, 1976. The Soviet Union fell in the late 90s, the Cold War came to an end, and there was an, an understanding as time went on that there was a greater uh, terrorist threat to this country. 
and the uh, attention of those who cared about nuclear security shifted from how many nuclear weapons you had to what could we do in counterproliferation to slow the spread of nuclear technology and uh, nuclear uh, sensitive nuclear technology to other nations of the world. Uh, this change in security was a major uh, 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 difference from the past, and it led to uh, an understanding that nuclear weapons did not have the role in U.S. foreign policy that they had before. The need for the number of weapons for the counter strikes that were imagined between the uh, United States and the Soviet Union was gone. With that decline in the number of weapons that were uh, required, there became an increasing interest in seeing a uh, dismantlement and reduction in the number of deployed nuclear weapons. Today, the focus is only on trying to see that other countries and uh, subnational groups detecting, deterring, and destroying efforts of these nations or groups to acquire a nuclear capability. And it's been somewhat successful. The efforts of the United States and its allies over the last several years have led to some countries actually giving up their nuclear weapons. All the nations of the former Soviet Union, except for Russia, have given up their nuclear weapons and returned those uh, uh, instruments to uh, Russia. <clears throat> South Africa, which had a nuclear capability, when apartheid ceased to be a uh, divisive matter for that country and for the world, gave up their nuclear weapons. We have the current example of the agreement with Iran, which may prove to be another important example of, pulling, of countries pulling back from the nuclear capability. Of course, counterproliferation is also concerned with the implications of the spread of nuclear capability that comes with commercial nuclear power. Important because today, many countries, many, there are many countries around the world who are thinking of beginning to use nuclear, commercial nuclear power, and with that comes these risks of proliferation. So this becomes still a frontline issue uh, for uh, the United States. So uh, what we have today is an agreement, first of all, among all parties, everybody who studies or is involved in this, an agreement that the ultimate purpose of this nuclear policy is never let a nuclear weapon be exploded in anger. On the other side, there's complete agreement that the current set of issues has to do with counterproliferation questions. Do not let a subnational group or a country acquire nuclear capability that might be used in anger. Completely, there's agreement on both long-run question and on the short-term agenda. But the issue also comes about how you approach nuclear weapons over the long term. And here there is a very, very strong division of views about the best way to protect civilization from the use of nuclear weapons. There is the idealistic view, which is to work diligently for the complete elimination of nuclear weapons. There is a pragmatic view, which is to accept the existence of these weapons in order to maintain their deterrent value while working to reduce the risks of the possession of these uh, dangerous uh, weapons in uh, a nation's arsenal.
The idealist believes that any inventory of nuclear weapons, no matter how small, presents an inevitable risk of catastrophic accident or unauthorized use or of theft. The pragmatist believes it's impossible to reverse the knowledge that have led to uh, nuclear weapons being invented and to reach agreement on their elimination as long as there are irreconcilable political differences and security concerns among <coughs> national and subnational groups. A small but feeble <coughs> U.S. nuclear posture could encourage other nations to uh, acquire a larger and politically more influential force. That is a dramatic difference of, of, of view. These two views have endured while there has been this dramatic change in the geopolitical uh, background, which first started with the first uh, with a uh, Cold War and now has turned to a much greater attention on counterproliferation. But the essential difference in those two competing views has continued to the present day. And there is no evidence that can be advanced which completely resolves this issue on one side or the other, which means that what we have to do is to make sure that we all see that both sides of this particularly important and deep divide deserve our respect and our attention. Let me give a few examples of where this divisive view occurs and arises today in our debates, in, in, in our uh, world. The first is the proposition of should the United States announce the no first use policy. That we will not use nuclear weapons first in any case unless there has been attack on us or our allies. Idealists believe that the United States should pledge that the United States would not be the first to use nuclear weapons in a conflict. They argue that the United States dominance and conventional weapons assures that the use of nuclear weapons will not be necessary to uh, preserve our interests. To leave open the possibility that the United States might use nuclear weapons is destabilizing because it, in a crisis it might lead to the fear of attack by an adversary and have them uh, uh, launch a first strike in order to preempt the use of nuclear weapons by the United States. The pragmatists have exactly the opposite view. They believe that because declaratory statements can always be reversed in a time when the occasion demands, declaratory statements have no predictable effect on how uh, opponents might react. Moreover, the, the ambiguity about the potential first use on balance contributes to stronger deterrence because adversaries cannot root out the possibilities of a preventive strike by the United States. There are distinguished individuals on both sides of this uh, uh, proposition of no first use. It continues to be debated in uh, the United States uh, and elsewhere in the world. I think in Europe, it's probably everybody believes the United States should have no first use. Second item has to do with the uh, Non-Proliferation Treaty, Article 6. In signing the Non-Proliferation Treaty in 1970, the United States agreed to Article 6, which says, each of the parties of the treaty undertake to pursue negotiations in good faith to effect, to effect measures relating to the cessation of nuclear arms race at an early date 
into nuclear disarmament and on a treaty of general and complete disarmament under strict international supervision. Now, idealists believe this article is committing the United States to a path of zero nuclear weapons. Perhaps it's in the distant future, but that is what our uh, goal should be, and that is how we should pursue our policies. Pragmatists see this provision as an empty uh, promise made by the United States in order to conclude a very lengthy and adversarial treaty with contentious views on both sides of the non-proliferation piece consistent with the counter-proliferation goals of the country uh, was, would be advanced by the treaty and they agreed to sign the treaty on Article 6 included. Now why was this such a contentious matter? And the matter came because many states, not the United States or Russia or China, many states, for example, Brazil, Egypt, India, and Mexico, did not see why the world should agree with circumstance where the United States and a few other privileged countries were allowed to have nuclear weapons and the rest of the world was prevented, the rest of the world being places such as Iran, of having a nuclear uh, uh, capability of their own. So it remains a matter which is of substantial difference. What should Article 6, should the, should the United States agree to Article 6? Have you agreed to the Article 6? What does it mean in terms of our commitment to complete and uh, uh, total uh, disarmament? And then we come to the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty. I was pleased to see that uh, Emily and Ann Schlesinger brought an old copy of Life magazine, so old that it's older than almost everybody in this room, which contained a statement by about the Comprehensive Test Ban, unchanged today from what it was in 1958. I guess that was the uh, Life Magazine article. But uh, the United States has not ratified the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty since the UN General Assembly adopted the treaty over 20 years ago. Although, it, although the United States has kept to a moratorium against testing, no nuclear testing for that, that period of time, it's awkward, but nevertheless true the last underground nuclear tests that were uh, undertaken by the United States occurred when James Riley Schlesinger was the Secretary of Energy, and I was the Undersecretary of Energy, but that's not uh, Anyway, there have been no tests since that time. Now, it's unlikely that the Senate is going to undertake the treaty again over the next four years, and there's no prospect of passage unless a new path is found to bridge the bitter divide between the idealists who support the treaty and the pragmatists who oppose the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty. The idealists believe that the U.S. adoption of the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty will slow the spread of nuclear weapons and strengthen the resolve of the signatories of the treaty to take robust action through sanctions against any nation which seeks to acquire weapons without, without risking, that is, giving up the testing without risking the safety or the reliability of the US, the US nuclear stockpile. Pragmatists, on the other hand, believe that the uh, conference on the performance of US nuclear weapons, which ultimately, ultimately, the credibility of the deterrent is the confidence that these weapons will perform as expected, uh, they believe that nuclear testing cannot be today agreed to be foregone forever. Pragmatists, pragmatists also uh, doubt that U.S. accession to the treaty
such as North Korea, for example, or subnational groups, such as ISIS, from pursuing the bomb. So this CTB, the Comprehensive Test and Debate, has gone on, gone on so long with such enmity that it's hard to avoid the impression that the proponents and the opponents of the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty would rather fight than win. Another uh, approach uh, is required. It's become a symbolic issue. And there is another way. Several years ago, Arnold Kenner, former Under Secretary of State, and uh, uh, Brent Scowcroft, twice a National Security Advisor for uh, President uh, Gerald Ford and for uh, President uh, George H.W. Bush uh, made the following proposal. Instead of having the comprehensive treaty be a permanent treaty that lasts forever, make it a, uh, a treaty which has a five-year term, and every five years the Senate reviews it and ratifies it and continues it in force for another five years. And this way, you would have a way of being saying you're going to have a test moratorium, making that test moratorium worldwide, but understanding that circumstances might change in the five-year review would allow an opportunity for uh, those who have uh, serious concerns to come forward and have it uh, debated once again. So uh, that is uh, the approach which uh, I certainly would recommend and certainly think would work for sure in the Congress. And I'll point out that the Non-Proliferation Treaty, which I mentioned earlier, when it began in 1993, uh, it was, uh, sorry, in 1970, uh, it was uh, only 43 countries agreed to it, and there was a five-year review, and it went on and on and on. Every five years, there would be a review, and every country had to come back and say, yes, we still agree. And finally, in 1995, the United States and everybody else said, okay, from now on, it's permanent, because it's worked. And therefore, it's a, a model for why an approach like that for the comprehensive test ban of a period of time when there is periodic review will uh, make a, a, a difference. Today, there are 190 signatories towards the, to the Non-Proliferation Treaty. But the main issue, which is on the table today, which is really uh, uh, goes back to the history of, uh, of Scoop Jackson and Jim Schlesinger, is what should be the character of our nuclear posture uh, going forward. And that is a pressing issue today on the table because there's a situation where the United States is considering the modernization, modernization of this nuclear, this nuclear arsenal. A few would, dis would deny the U.S. nuclear delivery systems and their supporting nuclear weapons programs managed by the Department of Energy are aging and do need some modernization. The question is how big a force is needed and what should be the composition of that force. Now, the Obama administration, for January 20, proposed an ambitious and costly extension and modernization for all elements of the U.S. nuclear deterrent. There are three elements called triad, nuclear ballistic uh, launching uh, missile submarines, uh, land-based intercontinental ICBM missiles, and uh, bombers, which are capable of delivering nuclear weapons, uh, B-52s and uh, B-1. What the uh, Obama administration proposed, and uh, uh, this is last year and a half of the administration, was to first of all build a new 
submarines, so-called Columbia-class submarine, to replace the Ohio-class uh, sub-launched ballistic missile system. Uh, they proposed the, uh, building a new nuclear-capable bomber, the B-21. They proposed a new ICBM to replace the old Minuteman system. And they proposed, in addition, a long-range air-launched cruise missile, which was nuclear-capable. They proposed to improve the uh, uh, command and control system for the nuclear uh, forces. And they proposed to renovate all of the uh, infrastructure for research, development, and managing the production of these weapons in the Department of Energy. It is a massively expensive program. The Congressional Budget Office estimates the budget authority required to carry out this nuclear modernization program for the 10-year period from 2017 to 2026 is $400 billion. Additionally, $400 billion. The annual rate of expenditures for nuclear forces would increase from about 5% of the Department of Defense budget to 7% by the year 2026. Now, there are many aspects of this uh, proposed modernization program which really completely astonish me. First, there is the issue about we have a triad now, bombers, submarines, and ICBMs. That's what we had when we designed for the Cold War, for dealing with the Soviet threat. We're going to build a new system for the next 30 years. Why does it immediately jump to mind that we should have exactly the same system? Is it possible to do with two legs of this train? What is it that requires us to say we have to have the identical system for geopolitical circumstances which are wildly different? So there's some debate about this, but unsurprisingly, and not even suggesting any uh, thinking about the analysis which led to this uh, decision to proceed with three, except Occasionally, when people say, well, <coughs> which leg should we drop? Curiously, the answer is we should not have any more ICBMs, intercontinental land based missiles. Now, what troubles me about that is that, in fact, that is the cheapest leg. It's less expensive to have than to have nuclear submarines, which have to have, you have to really have only one on station for every three that you have because you have to keep on rotating. They're always on. Man underground. So it's the cheapest part of it. Now, everybody, the mistake which was made about Jim Schlesinger, you didn't have only AC, energy, director of central intelligence, and defense. He was also, his first job was as assistant director for the Bureau of Budget. So he cared about money. So the idea here is if you're going to redo the whole system, you ought to say to yourself, it's a new world. What kind of modernization program you want? And by the way, dollars here are important. Pragmatists may believe that a large, strong nuclear posture is important, but they also say it's not an endless amount of money out there. You have to have an analytic base for why you are uh, proposing uh, this kind of a uh, program. When you're thinking about your future force structure, it should be based on uh, careful analysis and uh, uh, presentation of alternatives.
Turner's views so that the public, so that the Congress, so that the President can decide what is the best course of action. I will say to you, and I say it to you uh, in a moment in a, in a, as, a, as an element of uh, uh, my final point, that it is a very, very great surprise to me, the modernization program put forward by uh, the Obama administration um, has such a little amount of really conceptual discussion about what, why are the weapons needed today, and from that issue of addressing why are the weapons needed today, the kind of targeting that you might need to have, the kind of conflict situations that you might need, from there should determine in a pretty logical way, not everybody might agree with it, on the composition of the number of those forces. So uh, it is uh, uh, one of the uh, most uh, important things to me is to say, this country is facing a decision to modernize its forces at great expense in a way that will serve the long-run deterrent posture of the country for three or four decades at least with extremely little debate and extremely little public thinking about the rationale for the system that is being proposed. That is not something that I think would have uh, met with the approval of either one of the two gentlemen we are speaking about today. Somebody made a comment uh, earlier while I was here that there has been uh, a drop in U.S. government, in thinking about hard problems, we may be about to drop another hard problem that we're thinking, we should be thinking about, which is climate change. But one of the ones which is being dropped, a subject which is of great importance to the future of this country, is the character and the nuclear posture we have for the future. Let me thank you very much for your attention. I hope this is an opportunity for some question and interchange. The thing I like best about being at a university is hearing lots of different Thank you very much for your attention. So we do have uh, some time for uh, Q&A. We have a uh, microphone. Uh, so if you raise your hand, we'll get the microphone to you, and I'll, I'll have you recognize it. Thank you so much. Yes. Why that's true politically, but it is 
done to ensure the safety or reliability of the warhead stock itself. I think some of the WA design is like 30 years old, and there is they're subject to uh, degradation from radiation exposure. Can you give us an idea of what the modernization? I, I, I can. I can. So uh, what what has happened is, as part of this comprehensive test ban debate, what has been done is to institute a very comprehensive stockpile stewardship program. This is a program which runs at maybe almost $20 million a year where the Department of Energy and their laboratories are uh, uh, assigned the responsibility for annually reporting that the uh, weapons are safe and that they are as reliable as they had been planned to be. And in order to uh, gain evidence on that, and I don't want to go on too long on this point, but it is an important uh, they have designed the Stockpile Stewardship Program, which is a combination of very, very extensive simulation, uh, uh, computer simulation of the weapon systems, uh, some laboratory testing, which are indirect and not like really having a detonation to measure and predict. And uh, as, after they've done that annually, in, uh, for every one of the 10 or so different warhead types that are in the in the stockpile, they will write a letter that must be passed on by the Secretary of Energy to the President of the United States making their determination. Beside that, there is put together a group of experts who read the uh, submission of the uh, Nuclear Weapons Labs Director at San Sandia, and uh, uh, Liverpool and comment about the uh, continued assurance of the safety and reliability of the stock. Sounds good, but it is a system which is designed to get to one answer, which is everything is okay. Uh, and if you say, well, what really is on your mind? There's nobody in those labs who ever saw a nuclear test done before or was involved in the measurements of those tests. You might say, how can you be sure that their knowledge is as good as their cumulative uh, institutional judgment shows? After all, in case anybody here has any doubt, the DOE weapons labs are always right. So it is that view about the uh, confirming that your knowledge is as good as you think it is, rather than worrying about is this weapon not working this year, that leads to this issue on the Congress of Testing. But uh, there's a very extensive stewardship program uh, in place to annually confirm the fact that the weapons are as safe and reliable as they were in the past. Uh, Doug Luger uh, headed a commission uh, to dismantle uh, Soviet weapons. And how does that, how has that changed uh, the threat uh, to today with the uh, the Russians. Uh, another extremely good question. So the Nunlugar program said we will help Russia uh, make sure that they have good stewardship in their program. That they will not, because there was a real risk in the uh, late 90s, the uh, Russian government was so fragile that those that, that the nuclear weapons or the strategic nuclear materials would be stolen and sold.
sold to somebody elsewhere in the world. So Don Lugar was uh, a successful program in cooperation with the Russians to make sure that they had their weapons under control. It never was to help them uh, determine whether their weapons were reliable or safe or would work. It was just to make sure they knew where they were and they were keeping adequate control. Very successful. That's really a little bit heavy-handed, for sure. And it certainly has had an effect on 
morale in the Department of Energy, and uh, certainly the Department of State, would be statements about the budget, the inability of the Secretary to name his or her deputy. Uh, and, but, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, a lot of this is personal experience. When Jim Schlesinger and I walked in the door on the first day of the Department of Energy, succeeding the news Department of Energy, just been passing the law, so replacing the Energy Research and Development Administration, they thought the end of the world had come. It was the bad guys in the Department of Defense who were going to tell them what to do. And it turned out a year and a half later, you know, Jim Schlesinger said, most beloved secretary ever. Uh, so things will get better, but I must say they have been awfully heavy-handed about uh, coming in and, coming into, and, and understanding that the world isn't going to work unless they have the help of the uh, rank and file of the honest and dedicated civil service. Yes?
bear scrutiny under any circumstance. Even if you imagine a new, completely, you know, uh, U.S.-Russian uh, confrontation. Uh, I do believe that the possibility, if maybe not in my lifetime, possibly the lifetime of some of the people here, of a country becoming such an adversary of the United States and so powerful, that the issue of nuclear uh, posture and force structure becomes important again. And that's why I'm really, of, if you didn't guess, of this pragmatist school rather than the idealist school. And why I say, how can you say, an interesting you know, how can you say you're going to have no tests forever? You don't know that there's not a country which will come up and become a serious adversary 50 years from now. Don't, don't worry about it. We can get out of the treaty if we don't like it then. That doesn't seem to be here. I think you're quite right. You can't predict the world's future that far out. Can I ask a very brief follow-up? Absolutely. If there, if, if, given how long it takes for significant policy changes to evolve into actual, practical, uh, specific things built in our country, where process is so lengthy and arduous now, if you diminish one of the legs. Uh, to a significant degree so that you essentially have a bipolar or bi two-legged posture. And a, to what extent can you be confident that the response, what is in at least the U.S. and Iran breakout notion, how, how confident can you be that the U.S. could reestablish a three-legged, a necessary three-legged posture in time to react to the threat? Well, I, again, uh, uh, first of all, it's a good question. There is certainly a law time. Uh, but even under circumstances where we really wanted a lot more capabilities and needed it because there was a new adversary, who says it's three legs? Now actually they've got to be three and a half legs because they have that long-range nuclear-capable cruise missile, which combines the disadvantages of the bomber to the disadvantages of the missile. <laughs> and I would say this, the uh, Secretary of the Air Force, Certainly, me in 1970, for example. There are many fewer countries 
on the list they were before because of the six or so which went away when the Soviet Union collapsed into Russia. But uh, uh, I'm very surprised. <coughs> Countries which I thought were on the verge of getting weapons, Brazil, Argentina, uh, uh, Japan and Germany, of course, could have them many times than wanted. But there are many fewer weapons, uh, many fewer nuclear capable countries who have elected to have nuclear capability than I would have expected. All right, thanks for your comments. Uh, very quickly, um, I want to follow up on your comments just a moment ago. Uh, the former Soviet Union collapsed, uh, the munitions went back to uh, Russia. Do you think Ukraine is uh, second guessing that decision? <laughs> you'd have to ask them. You'd have to ask them. You know, what, what could they do with it? Not, I mean, I, I really think that they, in some goofy way, yes, but uh, uh, there, there's no conceivable political use that they could have made of that, uh, of having nuclear weapons. It might have made Russia a little bit you know, more cautious. That's one of the reasons people want to have nuclear weapons, because there's regional instability. And they don't, they, they say having weapons is better. India Pakistan, same thing. Having weapons is better than not having weapons in your the big brother next to you does. Yes, sir. Uh, Dr. Deutsch, I wanted to also have a little bit of a follow-up on one of your previous thoughts. You touched briefly on the idea of a potential fourth leg to the nuclear arms. You, you talked about the three and a half legs with the new cruise missile. And you said uh, potentially the introduction of an, of an unmanned arsenal aircraft that could be equipped. That would be instead of a manned bomber. Sorry? Instead of a manned bomber. Yes, instead of a manned bomber. So it's not uh, a fourth leg. Yes, sir. Uh, do you think that's an acceptable sort of precedent to set with yeah. nuclear arms that we take them out of the hands of, uh, of the people who are ostensibly supposed to have control of them and give them to machines that could be uh, subverted by enemy forces? You think ICBMs are fine? ICBMs are ballistic weapons. They can be fired and they just go where you told them when you launch them. Absolutely. An, unmanned, an unmanned vehicle can be hacked or given false orders. Oh, I see. You say that it's possible that an, un, uh, that an unmanned vehicle is uh, unlike a manned vehicle. They could also presumably get a pilot. There's some good movies about that. <laughs> get a pilot and support the pilot. So it's a good point. It's a good point. I just think technology has moved, and I know the expense of having many aircraft, which are trying to deliver aircraft, which are trying to protect. I'm saying I want to hear more about that, have that debate. I mean, you know. Well, kind of to follow up on his question, and you know, thank you again for taking your time to come visit us. But I had a question about uh, what of Russia's recent nuclear missile tests and testing the Trump administration with uh, flyovers coming in with nuclear, perhaps nuclear testing missiles. Well, what kind of, how can the U.S. move forward countering these kinds of threats? The Russians have always been more dependent on their long-range rocket forces than the U.S. has been. Their conventional forces, until recently, have not even been close to the United States, combined operations. But again, the fact that they are increasing their nuclear posture, which they certainly are, doesn't immediately mean that we have to increase ours. The art, maybe it's true, but that deserves some examination. They are putting out a new, a 
new line of missiles, but uh, it's not, I think, entirely because they're planning to strike the U.S. homeland, which used to be our first concern.